0: I'm Lee McCollum. I'm a Mises organizer here in Montana, as well as the manager of the Ask an Austrian series uh, that we launched this year, relaunched this year, uh, where we bring on uh, guests in the Austro-Libertarian tradition and the Misesian tradition to answer your questions about economics, philosophy and ethics. Um, And if you want future questions answered on the Ask an Austrian series, please submit them over at AskAnAustrian.com. I'll also be looking in the comments to see if you ask any questions there and also watching the live chat, just in case any good ones come in today. Um, but yeah, we, we have a list of questions today for Dr. Mark Thornton, so I want to dive right into them and welcome Mark Thornton today. Um, thanks for joining us again.
1: Liam, it's a pleasure to be with you here and the whole group.
0: Uh, yeah, it uh, should be fun. So just diving right in, why don't why don't you just introduce yourself for everyone really quick? Well,
1: um, I'm Mark Thornton, and I work at the Mises Institute, and I have for quite a long time, and I'm a senior fellow there. I'm the uh, uh, Luddy Peterson professor uh, of Austrian economics there, and uh, I work with all the educational programs of the Institute, including the academic journal.
0: Well, the first question we have for you uh... Dr. Thornton, is from Michael Heiss, who we just saw, and he's asking, what's the outlook for the housing and rental markets in 2023, and how does the current situation compare to the 08 housing market?
1: Well, that's a good question, um, and it's one that I've been following uh, for a couple of years, actually. I wrote an article about a year ago about the Fed creating another housing bubble Um <clears throat> And that was a little late, actually. Uh, You know, the housing bubble was in full bloom uh, by that point. And, of course, since then, it has come completely undone. Um, Housing meltdowns don't happen overnight the way they can in stock markets uh, or even bond markets uh, because of the instantaneous action. Housing, in contrast... You know, it takes months to build a house. Um, You know, the whole process takes about a year. Uh, And so there's a lag that's involved. But I think we're fully uh, in a downward trajectory and uh, interest rates. I don't see them going much lower anytime soon, which is what ultimately popped this housing bubble. Uh, And there are a lot of differences. Um, House owners are different. They're different people. They have financed their houses differently with more fixed-rate mortgages over longer periods of time in contrast to the riskier um, variable-rate mortgages. Uh, There's a lot of policy differences, obviously. So there's a lot of differences. Uh, between one housing bubble and the next. But overall, I mean, they're the same basic things of ultra-low interest rates feeding ultra-low mortgage rates and that causing people to uh, invest in more housing, more houses, bigger houses, more expensive houses. Um, We've seen a lot of... uh, wholesale re- uh renovations of housing uh so there's a lot going on there below the surface but basically i expect the housing and rental markets um to be under pressure uh in the sense that there's still a lot of inflationary fuel um uh in these markets uh so that rental prices for example could continue to increase broadly speaking Uh, Over the next year, Uh, but housing prices, you know, you've seen some adaptations, uh, sellers cutting their price, uh, offering mortgage assistance, um, all sorts of things to try to make the current inventory saleable uh, at this point in time. But ultimately, we're seeing prices go down. And, uh, you know, so that process is just now underway. We're pretty far away from uh, homeowners not being able to pay their mortgages uh, because, as I said earlier, much of the market is has been financed with very low interest rate, fixed rate mortgages so that a lot of the things like foreclosures and that sort of stuff is not going to come out exactly the same way, but uh, I would not be <clears throat> optimistic about either one of those markets uh, in terms of buying houses or renting apartments uh, this year. Although it's not going to be too much further in time when, of course, a lot of uh, inventory comes onto the market in results in significant price decreases. So if you're uh, interested in buying a house or becoming a landlord, uh, maybe now is not the right time, but your time is coming.
0: Now, kind of talking about interest rates again, we got another question from an anonymous person asking, how can the raising of interest rates lower prices if the money has already been printed?
1: That that's another great question. Yeah, they, when they're lowering interest rates and making loans, they're printing money essentially, and um, when they're raising interest rates, uh, the idea is to choke off demand, and uh, that sounds all fine and good, you know, as long as the idea is that everybody just sort of slightly cuts cuts back on their expenditures. But what's really happening is that people are being put under a lot of economic pressure uh, in terms of their credit card bills, uh, the higher interest rates on automobile loans. Um, all of these rates are going up. and so people simply can't afford to buy as much or as many uh, interest sensitive goods like um, houses, cars, boats, and so forth. Uh, they can't they shouldn't um, looking into uh, affording a larger credit card balance. Uh, and so basically that's how it does it. Yes, the money is on the table, but because the the price of borrowing money has gone up so much, it basically chokes off housing automobile loans, all other you know, type of uh, expenditures, including uh, borrowing money on your credit card. So it's in that way that the higher rates actually are supposed to depress uh, prices in the economy.
0: Now, Clarence Beeks is asking exactly how would you go about ending the Federal Reserve while minimizing the temporary financial market chaos?
1: Well, basically, I'd take the Federal Reserve out of the federal funds rate market. The federal funds rate market is where the big uh, banks lend money to each other uh, overnight to meet their reserve. Requirement balances, so it's it's down in the technology um, of the Federal Reserve system that the Fed is involved with, and you know they're providing the extra liquidity in those markets to keep the rates really really low. Um, so if we just take the Fed out of that market and force banks, you know, say I'm big bank A, and Big Bank 2 needs money to meet its reserve requirements. Well, I, I can lend uh, Big Bank 2 that money, uh, but I may be charging a much higher uh, interest rate as a result. So take the Fed out of that market. Uh, they could still be in the market, you know, in a phase in period in the discount rate market, as long as the discount rate that they offered. Was always and everywhere above market rates, so you can do you can really shut down, declaw, defang the Fed um, with a stroke of the pen. Okay, so yes, I mean you can imagine the nightmare of the government trying to, you know, break down the physical assets and and jobs and and so forth that the Fed does, uh, but you can essentially take all of their venom and their ability to poison the economy by simply taking them out of interest rate manipulation. So that's what I would do.
0: Ethan Holmes is asking, um, he says, libertarian economists tend to focus on the business side of things, capital in the monetary sense. As a result, they are often criticized for ignoring the importance of strong communities and the values and virtues that bond us in developing a prosperous society. (laughs) Is there work being done by libertarian economists in the realm of social and human capital? How can we sell people on not just the idea of a libertarian economy, but a libertarian community?
1: You know, I would – that's a very good question as well. And I would say, yes, we are. but I think there's a whole lot more work that needs to be done. Um, you know, there's several different types of economists. There's the socialists who basically have the same complaint over and over again. <clears throat> then there are the sort of the mainstream economists who pay attention to nothing but prices and you know. Austrians pay attention to prices, too. We think they're incredibly important. Uh, you know, you have to have money before you have prices, and you have to have prices before you have economic calculation, and the whole thing presupposes property rights. So it does sort of bring together um, many of the most important aspects of economics. Uh, but Austrians do look at things differently differently um and more socially i would say uh than most mainstream price theorists uh for example in my work on prohibition you know i'm not really concerned with the price of you know legal alcohol illegal cannabis black market heroin or whatever um I'm considering – I'm concerned about product quality, product potency, crime, corruption, the rule of law, you know, all sorts of things that are attached to that and are really, really important. Now, um, and I don't think Austrians forget the fact that the economy takes place within society and society is bigger and in some sense, just as important, if not more so um, than what people think of as just the economy um but there's more to be done there uh, and i I think we're at least cognizant of the fact that you cannot disturb or harm society groups um locales and so forth, uh, in the process of trying to social engineer uh, results like the progressive economists would like to do. Uh, So we respect that, but I think there's a lot more work, um, and as interesting things come up, um, Austrians, who, you know, now that we have at least some numbers of Austrian economists, um... Yeah, there. Some of this other work uh, can be done. You know, when I first started studying economics, there was like, you know, maybe twelve Austrian economists in the world, uh, and most of them were, you know, full-time teachers. So we've come a long way. We have people working on all sorts of things uh, that are more social, I guess. Um, than purely economics. Uh, And uh, so it's it's a great question. And, you know, no society can uh, survive and thrive if government is running roughshod over the primary social pillars of a community like religion, like schools, like business organizations. Nonprofits and so forth—all of that is is very vital. And we've seen, you know, government in recent years do things that were previously unthinkable. You know, the idea that the government could come in and say, "Well, uh, no church for the next two or three months." Um, you know, that is something that I just can't imagine uh, ever happening. And but it has happened, and so we're, we're going to have to pay attention to to that uh, much more, and uh, and and be concerned about the, the the social fabric. I mean, it's it's uh, it's important.
0: So you mentioned that when you first got involved, there were only about ten economists in the Austrian field, and um, it's related to what Samuel Peterson is asking. He says, or he's wondering how you how you became an economist, and what originally interested you in economics.
1: Well, I think I do know that. Um, I I liked my economics classes in college, and I really didn't like any of the other classes. Uh, I'd either had similar classes or... Um, You know, the introductory business classes were uh, boring uh, to me, and uh, but economics stood out, so I became an economics major. Um, A year or so later, I discovered the Libertarian Party and then Austrian economics. Austrian economics was completely absent from my undergraduate curriculum. I only found out about Austrian economics through the Libertarian Party and uh, libertarian organizations, such as um, Cato and um, the Institute for Remain Studies. And, um, and then I graduated in 1982, which was an economic depression. You know, when they talk today about the highest inflation in 40 years, well... Guess what? (laughs) That's the type of economy I graduated from. And there were no jobs to apply for uh, where I was from in Western New York at the time. And so I decided to apply to graduate schools. And I lucked out, I guess, because I chose Auburn University in the state of Alabama, which was a bizarre thing at the time. And the Institute um, was also in the process of choosing Auburn and Auburn University uh, as a headquarters at the same time. So I really lucked out um, on all of that. And uh, my first love in Austrian economics was the business cycle theory. And uh, so I came to Auburn thinking I was going to write a thesis Um, on the Austrian business cycle theory as applied to uh, my adult experience circa 1978 to 1982. Um, But when I came to Auburn, I was disabused, even though it was a friendly free market department. They thought that the Austrian theory was crazy. And so I put that on hold until more recent times when I've been writing about the business cycle. But um, I got in, interested in economics because I was interested in business. Uh, and I was interested in my own community failing. And um, and I kind of was guessing that it was government's fault. Um, you know, we had they'd done all... Uh, all these stupid things, going off the gold standard, wage and price controls, Vietnam War, uh, so on and so forth. Um, it was America's losing decade, and um, and and so I was got very lucky and was able to pursue that uh, to the utmost. And uh, even though I had to give up. Uh, the the Austrian business cycle theory idea. Initially, I was able to come back to it, um, and and I have more work to to do in that area for sure.
0: Riley Whip is asking, "What is the best way to use Austrian economics and entry level business to help create value?"
1: Well, um, yes, uh, that is. Uh, A great question, a very practical question. Uh, Business, especially entry-level business, you have to create the value experience for your customers. Uh, One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is that Americans have lost their service orientation in work. Uh, In other words, when you go to work, you go to serve, and you're serving your boss, uh, but you're also in the business of serving the customer. And you have to do whatever it takes um, to basically satisfy your customers. You have to be able to create value. You have to be service-oriented. Uh, you have to be quality service oriented um, and I think that's how new businesses take off. I've seen it many many times that um, you know in a given industry stationary process, you know plumbing repair or lawn uh lawn care services or whatever it happens to be, you know people can enter those businesses. And not have to worry too much about competition if they just do a better job of making sure the customer is satisfied. And that requires that you take a service orientation philosophy uh, into your job. You know, my father and grandfathers and so on and so forth, they were small scale entrepreneurs. Um You know, they work six days a week, 10 plus hours a day, uh, and they never really thought about doing anything else. And that kind of mentality that is necessary to make a business go just no longer um, exists widely um, in American business the way it used to be. And, uh, and so I think that's, that's really the key and it works in anything. Um, you know, you don't have to be the greatest technically trained medically proficient nurse in the world to become the best nurse in town, uh, just by that mentality and that philosophy uh, of doing your job uh, the market catches on to that and rewards that
0: um, so that's what I would say all right so I think we only have time for one more question so I'm going to pick one from the live chat here um Donnie Letson is asking how does crypto fit in the strategy of decentralization or does it what's your overall opinion on crypto in our economy
1: I think it does fit the strategy extremely well. Um, I think crypto and the blockchain technologies are going to be um, with us uh, for a very long time. And and it's going to become more important over time. And I know this is dark days for the uh, crypto uh, gang, but um, I think it's not terribly surprising what's happened to it. And I expect a lot of further pain this year. Uh, but ultimately I anticipate a long-term bottom in the Bitcoins. And um, I also expect that when we get to that low point, of course, nobody's going to want to be introducing new coins but there's going to be a lot of new coins and new technology uh, built into the newer coins, so the technology is going to benefit uh, from the recession, uh, economic crisis that we're looking at going forward. And I think that the the really long term crypto uh, coins um, are probably going to get introduced in this coming economic crisis. So I think we're going to get a a, a new, new long-term low, and we're going to have see some ex- exciting uh, new coins come out um, as we exit this economic crisis going forward.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we, we got a bunch of questions, and unfortunately, uh, we can't get to all of them, but I will save them for future episodes. So Please tune in to future episodes. Our next guest is with Joe Salerno. Um, so I hope you continue to listen and follow us at askanaustrian.com. Um, and then, Dr. Thornton, are there any recent works that you want to promote and you want to tell people where they can find your your works?
1: Well, of course, I've got all my stuff on Mises dot uh, org and um, you can find some of my books like the Skyscraper Curse book. Um, and other books that were published by the Mises Institute, you can get uh, free PDFs off of our website. So, um, yeah, I think that's the main thing. I think that the Skyscraper book, even though it's four years old, uh, now it's just as applicable, um, you know, more broadly to the current situation and explains a lot of the fundamentals of Austrian business cycle theory within it. So, uh, you should take a look at the PDF and maybe buy a copy of the of the book itself.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for doing this again. Um, and we're, we're getting ready for Angela McCardle in the, the next segment. But here is Aaron and Michael Heiss.
1: Yeah, thanks, Liam. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure. You have a, you both have a great New Year. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year, man. Thank you so much.